Dr. Kuhn's last episode, the topic of cynicism was mentioned more than once as something that especially is in the nature of the right when they find that they are an everlasting scapegoat and seem to have no real recourse within the body politic of a collapsing economy or a collapsing society. Right. And we looked at Spain and its overlaps with the current state of the United States. We talked a little bit about Argentina um, as well and uh, uh, the book, the resource recommended there. Um, one of the things that is indirectly, but I think not so indirectly connected to all of this is something I noticed among the ministerium of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, over my 15, 16 years now as a, as a pastor. And that is that, by and large, left or right in our terms, whatever that means, is a very different uh, battlefield, I suppose. But yeah, right. we're all cynics. Our general response to all the politic we do is to complain and laugh about it. Yeah. And there's yeah. something tremendously inactive about us right. because of this. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that is engendered by a sense that things can't or won't change. It's, it comes out of apathy. And it's, it's better probably to call things like that hatred than cynicism, that underneath cynicism or the, the desire, like you said, to, to laugh and, and to complain but to do nothing about it is, is, is a certain hatred of the person or the, the group at whom you're laughing. Um, there may be a sincere sense that, that something cannot change or you are not in a position to make it change. And I understand that because not everything is actually subject to the individual person who knows about the situation. That's fine. That's you know according to your vocation. But in that case, why are you devoting energy to caring or complaining? You know, that, that's the question you have to ask yourself. If I can't actually do anything about this, why am I worrying about it? Or if I could do something, why am I complaining but not doing anything about it? And, and that is hatred. Because hatred is to recognize that the guy is running off the cliff and you could stop him and you, you're just laughing about what an idiot he is. Yeah, if, and that's what's if, disturbed me. If you me. can't do anything about it, that's you know that's one thing. I mean, you're too far away. You're sad, right? But you can't do anything about it. But to laugh is to say, you know, I could, but serves you right, or I hate you anyway, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What disturbs me is how this has just become kind of the group discourse, and I don't think it's just the LCMS. I, th no, I think we're no. just a reflection of of this broader picture. Right. But there's a lot of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastors, I think, who listen to this show. And to to take a very direct takeaway from last time, like watch your tongue when you're with each other as brothers and catch how many times you're criticizing something. Just check it out. It's like, it's like all we are able to do is criticize something that we actually can't change. And then someone will start making jokes about it. It's not always, it doesn't always start as, as jokes, but it ends up in the sarcasm by the end of the night. And like this is getting us nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. Um, we have to have a positive position. As we talked about last time, that the right doesn't exist with any actual thing to do. And that this, I think, is where we're going to go as we move toward yeah. what? Clausewitz? Reverse, the reverse Clausewitz sounds like a jiu -jitsu reverse move. Clausewitz, yeah. Because, and, and I think that that is in the nature, and you and I are probably factored on the right in, in LCMS terms, both of us. Most def. And, and I think that it has to do with the nature of the right uh, in any sort of political configuration that thinks of itself this way. Even in the LCMS, where Generally, I'm being figured on the right because I'm saying something that's actually on the books, or at least was on the books. So I'm actually defending the regime in that in that way, you know. So I'm saying, hey, you know, we used to think birth control was a sin. I actually think that, you know. So I'm I'm defending old ways in that case, but e but even then, cynicism enters in because you have the sense that you cannot you cannot participate. That participation would be vain or futile or whatever. And sometimes that's driven by something that we also talked about in the last episode, which is a lack of willpower, which is someone wants to complain instead of actually getting elected to a position in which he could do something about it or whatever the case may be, right? You just want to complain because it's easy. But in addition to that, it's also because very often when something is changing with 
you know, within a left-right political configuration, the person who's on the right, whatever the issue is, feels, conf- I think conf- there, there is something confused about being on the right, because if the left is constituted by various forms of resentment, you're constituted by opposition to the left. You're not constituted by something positive. Because when you're constituted by something positive, just take the example of birth control. And surely our listeners know this if they don't already, right? That that used to be just the LCMS position and blah, blah, blah. Who cares? for our, But for our specific purposes, if I'm cynical, I just say, nobody's ever going to listen to me. If I'm not cynical, I think, okay, how in my preaching, how in my teaching, how in getting things formally, you know, set up or passed, if I care about that, you know, how is that actually going to be achieved? Because if I'm sincere and I actually love other people and I want them to know the truth, then I'm going to be willing to wait 15 years for someone to say publicly what I personally say right now. If I'm cynical, it, there, there is a certain, you know, uh, haste in cynicism, which is nobody's saying what I say right now. Nobody agrees with me. So you just remain silent. And what you get is the luxury of knowing that you're right. Small r. And I think that that luxury of knowing that you're small r right exists over and over and over and over again on the right And it's why very often, and this is the case in the Spanish Republic, Second Spanish Republic as well, the right is confused or a better word, although a stranger word is inchoate. That means that it should come together. It should gel. It should be something. But right now it's not. And the right is that way because when you're constituted by opposition to some other force that just in, not in a moral sense, but just in a sense of like direction, the left has a positive direction. It knows where it's going. It's going in the direction of being against whatever the intersectional class is, you know, the unvaccinated, that's, that's a new intersectional target, you know, so whatever else we don't have in common, at least we have in common that we're, we've been vaccinated twice and we're now going to get the booster shot. So the unvaccinated are the intersectional target. That's an actual direction. It's not morally positive, but it is politically positive. The right doesn't know what it's for until it figures out what the too often too late for many people, what the stakes are. So in the case, in the example that I use with birth control, okay, well, the stakes are we are in demographic free fall as a church, as are Roman Catholics, because they have it on the books too, but they generally don't talk about it. Maybe their priests don't even agree with the official teaching. Maybe they are also cynical, but they generally don't talk about it which is why actual obedience to the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on birth control, which is actually less stringent than the historic LCMS position, which was also against natural family planning. Okay, you're going to find actual obedience generally only in Latin mass parishes. So you got a group of people who are actually paying attention and they agree with it. So Latin so, mass parishes, that, that makes me think, that just, that just yeah. got abolished, didn't it? Something came out. I, I don't know the ins and outs of that. <laughs> That's partly because I, I personally have never been interested in the official Roman Catholic Church. I'm very interested in the fact that almost all practicing Catholics I've ever met who were not converts, there are a couple exceptions. All the ones I've ever met were cynical about their own church's teaching. And that to me was just a lot more significant than whatever the converts were telling me Roman Catholicism was. Hmm. So I myself, for instance, was never interested in Roman Catholicism as a religious option because I knew too many Catholics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you encounter cynical people and, and people on the right, politically, theologically, <laughs> whatever, need to remember this. If you encounter cynical people and you're not really decided on the question, you're like, well, those cynical people aren't attractive. Why, like, why would I become Catholic if being Catholic means basically just like you have an Irish last name and maybe one of your grandmas was Italian and you go to mass like every once in a while. That's like, what is that? So cynicism it often is induced by a feeling of powerlessness, but also I think by an apathy, which is truly a hatred, which is I don't care enough that you're going off the cliff to do anything about it. Yeah. That really is something to see it in that light. I think the, the standard American LCMS ministerium cynic critic is is just so overwhelmed and desensitized by the war 
and the um, the feeling of futility yeah. that in many ways it is. It's grasping at the straw of being right in the face of impending judgment. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't, and it's also often an investment in synod and, and synod institutions oh, that, sure. I, I just, yes. that, that I just, I just don't share the reason that I'm not apathetic about things that could be conceived in, you know, church political terms is because my, my concern is someone is sitting under that cynics preaching and, and what is that person hearing? Because I'm happy to turn this into a, you know, not a, visual meme, but a verbal meme, at least the people that keep the lights on in our churches deserve better than cynicism. Yeah, that's why true. I care. Yeah. None of that. That's that, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm concerned about that person that, that, that deserves better preaching from his pastor than just his pastor's cynicism about LCMS electoral politics and a bunch of stuff. Nobody really needs to care about. Yeah, he that's... needs, he needs something earnest and positive that applies to his life. And he's not getting that. He's not getting that he's getting, you know, law, then gospel, then, you know, maybe some sacraments. That's the sermon every week, week in, week out. And he's getting cynicism about everything else, yeah. about the world, about the church. And that also inspires nobody. Like I said, with all the the Catholics that I knew that didn't do or say any of the things that I was later told by converts, Catholics did and said, that it doesn't cynicism is not attractive or inspiring to anybody. And so if we realize that we're basically, you know, <laughs> maybe we're in Spain circa 1933, then we need to realize that we need something positive to provide, which is not confusion or mere opposition. And that is actually a good thing. That is actually a helpful thing. That's an inspiring thing, but that doesn't come about through constituting yourself by opposition. And it certainly doesn't come about opposition alone, certainly doesn't come about through cynicism because cynicism is kind of disgusting to everybody who sees it. Not more confused opposition. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like don't let your sense of w what you are just be, you know, the fact that silently, you know, what's really true, but <laughs> you're, you're above it all or something. So you never actually say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with identity. Yeah, what do you mean? Uh, what I mean is that in the moment when I am facing enough overwhelm, enough you know, enough bad things that I can't seem to find uh, a a simple, wise path through, and so in my my heart begins to palpitate, and I begin to be greatly concerned about the future and all this stuff. Yeah, that when I remember that my identity uh, is, I mean, as a Christian, it goes there even before anything else, uh, that my identity is one whom on judgment day will be vindicated for every action taken in faith and declared to God, like given to God to, to live and walk in his word. Um, it doesn't matter what time I find myself in or what time I thought I wanted to be in on judgment day. This is the epic. And yeah. It's not time for apathy. It's not time for cynicism. It's time to rise and shout and proclaim. Um, and, and that, again, so that's what I mean by, by identity, okay. um, that in who I really am and believe I am because of a community outside of me that's chosen me from the past. You know, they, I didn't choose it. They chose me. They grabbed me. They baptized me because I have that now. And what it says about me, uh, I have something to stand on against the stories as they assault me with, with the present fears, which are very real things. It's not that they're not real. I mean, I, you said something a while back about you need more than symbols, and I've been, I've been reckoning with that one over and over again because I actually think you're kind of wrong in some ways because you, you do need a symbol before you need anything else, um, and then the symbol is what will compel you to understand what you're going to do with the real things you have. But your, your point about uh, needing to not just surround yourself by a bunch of pictures of what the Avengers and Captain America, and then that'll, that'll fix it, but you actually have to to go and be the person that you believe the world needs right now, that there are no yeah. good men. You must become one now. Um, right. That, that again happens best when there is an identity of good men before you from whom you've received the torch. And then, you know, whether that's your father, whether that is a school, whether that is something you just get together and decide right now, we're going to do identity, accountability, glory. These kind of, they revolve around each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that if you think about this in terms of this right-left distinction, 
helpful in some ways, not helpful in others. To think of the right as very, very often constituted by a feminine passivity, which is becoming in women and unbecoming in men. To understand that what has to happen in the future, no matter what kind of instabilities we face, that men have to accept the destiny that they have been given by virtue of what they were made to be. And the, you know, lesbian English professor at, I think, Penn in Philadelphia, Camille Paglia, said that something much more succinctly and perceptively than I have hardly ever heard it said inside the church, which is that women just are and men must become. And men individually, but then also men collectively, especially men organized on the right, very often think that women just are and men can also just be. That if you just go on existing as a good guy or a nice guy or whatever, you will receive credit or you will receive what is due to you. And this is not the case even under peaceful conditions. You still have to become someone who can endure things, who can endure pain and mockery and persevere because you have to become a certain kind of a man in order to protect and provide for your family. How much more than under warlike conditions, whether metaphorically warlike or literally warlike, do you have to become on an individual and collective level someone that you were not before? So when you think about confusion, maybe understand that what we're talking about is some sort of political confusion. You don't know whom you represent or what you need to be for. We talked about last time how the right in Spain became more clearly pro-Catholic, that is just pro-Christian in Spanish terms, as time went on, as the persecution of the church increased. But what that means is that uh, confusion politically, personally, whatever, for a man is an example of a passivity which is wildly unbecoming in him. Indecisiveness, lack of clarity. And I don't mean that everyone has to become, you know, th this, this gets reduced into some sort of, you know, everyone is just macho and grunting all the time. You know, that's, it, that's an absurd caricature designed to prevent you from becoming decisive and clear. Confusion is a luxury you no longer have, especially under conditions of predicted instability. I got a couple of things I'm writing down here. So there was a lot there. I like the idea of confusion as a luxury, but first toxic masculinity uh, came across my plate in the last couple of weeks, a book recommended by an extended friend um, and really claiming that the big threat to the church right now is toxic masculinity. And I said, oh, that's a very interesting thing. The, 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 <laughs> The, the uh, men are the thing that's the problem because they're doing yeah. so much at all the churches. That's why, you know, there's right. like only, you know, two left with the other 15 women yeah. and most of them. Right. And so yeah. I, I don't know, but, but you're, you're right though. in this, I mean, it, it has to be recognized that the, the caricature has been troped out there in order to demolish any actual growth toward manhood. Yeah. So yeah, you drop out these guys that are going to look macho, act stupid, the mook. They've been making the mook for a long time. And I'm, I'm, I'm angry now. I'm sick of it because it's, it's, it's dirty-natured propaganda. It is damn cheating. And to do that to us now, we have to then just ignore it. Right? you got to turn those images off. you got to stop believing that anybody who stands up for himself and learns to speak and look people in the eye is therefore somehow like like Tarzan vampire killer or something you know, right. as a result of it. So, yeah. yeah, just say more about that because that, yeah. that phrase toxic masculinity itself is toxic. It is. And understand that the adjective there doesn't matter. They're, they're just saying that being a man is evil. That's what that means. So if you are biologically male, you're going to try to become <laughs> pharmaceutically female uh, or at least aspirationally female if you can. So you're going to talk in an uncertain way. You're going to uh, end your sentence. All your sentences are going to sound like questions. You're going to defer to the woman in the group or the even better black woman in the group or even better queer Latinx woman in the group. And the reason that you're going to do that is so that you aren't decisive. You aren't clear. You aren't in control. So toxic masculinity is a libel, not so much against certain, you know, 
machismo behaviors, which you can tell from the word itself, are more common in, you know, Latin American cultures than they ever were in, you know, 1930s America or something. But it's a, it's a, it's a libel against men in the same sense that leftist labels are always libels, racist, homophobic, Islamophobic. These are meant to control you. And they're meant in controlling you to make you, especially if you are a man, to make you more and more and more and more passive so that you represent no threat. That's the point. So if you just opt out of being controlled by those labels, and this isn't just, although it is also your media consumption habits, Mm -hmm. if you opt out, then the spell is broken because understand that the spell is exercised by physically weak people who never understand their own limits. And if you look at the, you know, go, go look at a picture of a guy we mentioned last time, Manuel Asanya, who is in charge of this regime uh, in the second Spanish Republic in many ways, formally and informally. These are people who spend their, their lives are organized around resentment. It may be figured in American terms, in terms of like eighties bully movies, But that itself was also a slander. The guy who lifts weights all the time actually understands pain and suffering and growth. So he's probably actually a more decent person than someone who has never been physically tested, never had to work, and finally got into power and will now exercise his resentments out on you Hmm. because he doesn't even know his own limits because he's never been forced physically to understand his own limits. So when the right in whatever arena that's figured when the right doesn't understand itself positively as the promotion of what is natural, what is good, what is simple. We got a man, we got a woman, they have a baby. We protect that. We got a church. The people are good. They learn how to be forgiving. Even just on a political level, we protect that. We got a state. It hurts bad people. It doesn't hurt good people. It doesn't outrageously tax people who are actually productive. We protect that. Kind of simple. That's why we call it natural law. Those things need to be positively asserted without without a shred of self-doubt. Because the self-doubt allows into your mind and then into your voice and then into your words and then into your actions the idea that people who organize their lives around resentment and the exercise of power, not as the English distinction has it, not authority to protect or anything like that, like a father, but around power, just the sheer exercise of power over you. You're letting those people control you and they don't even need laws because they can control you because they control your mind. So when you stop letting that happen, you can do things that they don't, that they don't want you to do which is in Spanish context or American context, how the right actually grows when someone just starts saying or doing things that the left has said, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. You can do things that they can't imagine you doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I said that the right was in coit. I think that is almost always true in, you know, post French revolution, Western societies, but it does grow in coherence. So by the time it is participating in elections which are rigged by 1936. And that's going to be admitted by everyone except the, the, the most ideologically blinded historians uh, today that by the end of the Republic, uh, the Republic couldn't even hold fair elections and they knew it. The right will grow in coherence as it grows in self-assertiveness. Because it's not organized around resentment, but it is organized around the protection of things that are that are good. It has to be. And it's going to be organized uh, in a Spanish context around the defense of Roman Catholicism. It's going to be organized in an American context, at least around the freedom of religion, okay, which is historically and for the vast majority of our population even today is going to be Christianity Though that organization is going to grow in coherence as it grows in self-assertiveness. Self-assertiveness may look like participation in, in remnant political processes. It did for the right in Spain. I mean, they, they did participate in elections throughout the history of the Republic until the beginning of the war in 36. They did 
honestly participate. The thing that changes in 36 is something that I think will be really interesting to map onto American history, which is that you get something that I'm going to call a reverse Clausewitz. So here's just the German military theorist Clausewitz famously says that war is an extension of politics by other means. I think that's true. And, I, and he's trying to say that in order to limit the scope of war as well, right? So war is not something that you just engage in capriciously or to destroy populations or whatever. Let's reverse that too. Let's see if that runs in the other direction, which is that politics is the extension of war by other means. And I think mercifully so. Something that you see happen when political systems begin to collapse and people are cynical about them, they're refusing to participate. And this happens in the Spanish Republic on the left as well as the right. You get bombings, you get assassinations of you know, moderately leftist figures by farther leftist figures, right? For example, is that violence lies underneath politics. And Romans 13 tells you that too. He does not bear the sword in vain, not just the pen, but also the sword. And you can't get rid of the sword. Someone will have the sword. It's when we don't agree on who has the sword because we don't agree on who has the pen by right. That is whose law is actually valid that there begin to be multiple swords. And when there are multiple swords, you are close to, if not eventually in by 1936 in Spain, civil war. So what you see, and we talked about this last time, or maybe two episodes ago with the, the Fry Corps and their, you know, kind of mirror image groups on the left in Germany is that those proxies for violence as an extension of other political categories, those proxies exist because political processes and ultimately a law itself are collapsing or just don't even matter. They're not even relevant to people's thinking. So if I'm an anarchist and I'm willing to kill a more moderately leftist figure in 1930 Spain, the reason I'm willing to do that is because I think this actually matters more than continuing to go along with some sort of overarching leftist coalition over against the right, such as Asanya constructed in what's called the popular front. For electoral purposes, sure, fine, whatever, I don't care. But cynically, I'm also going to reserve the right to kill local people or regional figures or whatever, if that seems more in line with what my, my actual resentments, my actual political goals are. So I think that something you can see anytime that a polity is collapsing is how violence is not something that you can abolish. It's just something that you can channel in human groups. And when the channel, the, the main channel, which should be the government, however constituted, begins to be seen as irrelevant or pointless or stupid or even evil, then that violence gets channeled through as many channels as people desire. And that happens on all sides uh, of the political spectrum in Spain in the 1930s. I think that you're beginning to see that now in the United States, well, which I, is that, uh, yeah, go ahead. Does the American patriot movement have a chance and will they try soon? You mean electorally or? No, no. I mean, I mean, yeah. the, the ones I hear or see, I mean, I don't really look for these guys, but yeah. I see them pop up and they're like, yeah. you know, we're going to be going soon. Just hang tight. And it's like, wow, they're going to, they think they're going to launch something. That's. Yeah. So I, I think that, I think that this has to do with something. And I, I, I don't, this is not the case in 1930 Spain. I don't, the Spanish right in the 1930s, certainly by 35, 36, they're not really allowed to participate in elections. That sounds very familiar to us. But they also are seeing churches burned. They're seeing nuns and priests be shot to death in large groups. They will respond in kind, although some of that is fabricated uh, during the Civil War, but they will respond in kind to leftist groups. They are, I think, tell themselves fewer fairy tales than I think a lot of people on the right, very broadly speaking, very broadly using that term in a political sense, they tell themselves many fewer fairy tales than people on the right in the United States do, where you know, the entire narrative of QAnon is built off the idea that somehow there are good people out there in our government, in positions of influence, who are about to, or who have, if you're more thorough with your QAnon stuff, 
who really are still in power. And the reason that's a fairy tale is because it, it figures th that the government and history works very similar to how, and this is why I think it's, it's, it's largely a phenomenon. Um, QAnon is an overwhelmingly feminine phenomenon where a rescuer shall come, but it's also very much a boomer phenomenon, very much more boomer than, than X or millennial. It's a phenomenon that, that harkens back to the Westerns, a genre that hardly exists anymore in American media that the Westerns always posited, which is by the end of the episode, the Lone Ranger will have resolved the problem. And I mean, if you, if you absolutely need to watch something, the Lone Ranger is pretty good. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty wholesome stuff. My, my four-year-old loves it. But if my 11-year-old told me that he thought that's the way that the world worked, I would be a little disappointed in him. And it's not because I wanted to be cynical. It's because I don't want him for his own sake to believe in fairy tales, such as there's always a good guy out there who's going to come fix stuff. And I think that a lot of thinking on the right in the United States is based on the idea that, that what we really need to do is just get people to pay attention and then things will be fixed. And um, that assumes a goodwill and a desire in the American populace that is not there. Yeah. 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 You know? We just need to have a few more yeah. conferences and publish some more books and right. then the people out there will read them and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and change I, their minds. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't want to mock it because it is so well-intentioned, True, but, but it also has to do with, you know, we need to tell people what's in the constitution and stuff. And that is all good as far as it goes. But I think to understand that what we're up against is simply like a set of legal misunderstandings, which will be reversed by judgeships or elections or something, is not to recognize the nature of the evil that we're facing. Churches are being burned. They were even burned in the South, okay, within the past couple of years. Churches are being burned. Your children are being told that they should become transsexuals. So we're not up against something that is merely an electoral or a political problem. And that is also why I think even in leftist controlled places such as Portland, that is why violence is being carried out, not only against right-wing groups that, you know, Patriot prayer movement that come to downtown Portland to pray publicly. It's being carried out. You have internecine warfare on the streets of places like Seattle and Portland between various leftist groups. Because we're not dealing with, or we're not, and the Spanish were not in the 1930s, dealing with a reality which was mere, merely a political problem. We're dealing with a civilizational crisis induced by the dominance of people who organize their life and their political actions, as well as lots of other things, around resentments and oppositions, especially to Christ. That was so good. I'm writing it down. Keep talking. <laughs> and, and, and because of that, precisely because of that, the solutions that we're going to need and also the things that we will see in the years um, will not be merely political problems that could even be solved by a massive, you know, patriot conspiracy such as Q presented itself, whatever its origin was, good, bad, whatever, you know, we're going to fix this because there are still some great guys in the FBI. Yeah, right. The U.S. Well, is built on the on the lone white hat network. I wrote that before right, you said exactly. before you said yeah. Lone Ranger. You said Lone Ranger. I'm like, yes, I got it. Um, right. I, but, but, but Latinos in my area are wearing masks. I don't think they care what the Constitution says. The TV told them to wear masks. It's what the authority says to do. I mean, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of constitutions in South America, and then there's what you're told to do. Yeah, I think they just get it, and we don't in some ways, or we know we have time. Perhaps uh, you know, I'm, I want to. Well, I'll, I'll leave that for another time. I have, I have a my own little uh, publishing house insurgency has begun here. We're, we're going to be publishing pamphlets around here about mm -hmm. masks and whatnot. But for the sake of people who, again, I think are just following what their inputs tell them, and so we ran right. past that a while ago. And you yeah. said something. Oh, the spell is broken. It, it's going to be. Your level of apathy is going to be tied to your level of media consum consumption and that that is a spell that the world is putting over you. 
And that if you can stop those inputs and realize I am not like this eternal sponge, I have my, my, my heart and mind, they, they are their own form of liver. And in fact, if I overdose it with sugar, I will kill myself. And so <laughs> I need to have less in my diet. And right. all I can say, Dr. Coons, is that a year and a half into deciding to have less, all I can do is take more out and find more not media inputs. Because again, the things that I'm doing with my hands, with my, my person, with my mouth, yeah. um, these are paying such dividends. And then all these other things just continue to show a real lack of any value other than to keep us all worried about the future together and not doing much about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those things also do not enable you to see long standing historical connections for what they are because they keep you focused on very short term thinking. Right. So, I mean, there's a timeline that in the, in the case of Spain is very much sped up. And the way that I think about where we are in the United States right now is that, it's a very slow moving avalanche. Whereas in the case of Spain, you get, you get, you get an overthrow of government, you get a new Republican government, which is simultaneously a government by leftists, which means it's not a government by law. You get assassinations, you get rigged elections. And that all happens in the space. We've been talking this week and last five years Mm. before that turns into civil war. Even in the case of the American civil war, you have a much longer run up. Because there really is a much greater store of common political capital, constitutional government, and desire to get along that does not create the fractures nearly so quickly in the 19th century in the United States that happened with Spain in the 20th. Even with the speed of technology, we're dealing with something where if you compare us to Spain, we're moving much more slowly. So for instance, the assassination, and I I think I mentioned him last time, that really sparks a, the right's capacity to face up to the left and to leftist violence head on in 1936. That assassination of Jose Calvo Sotelo happens. And then really like a week later, the, the army and army officers who are very hostile to this regime in Spain are ready to go. In the United States, we not only have assassinations nobody talks about and why those happened and the role of anarchism in American history with 19th century assassinations. But we also have um, an assassination in 1963 that has no apparent, clear, satisfactory to everyone's source. No one, no one is totally satisfied, even if he believes that it was physically what occurred, and many do not, that Lee Harvey Oswald shot John F. Kennedy. And shot him to death. Does anybody even what, uh, like born in the last 20 years know who that is anymore? I mean, do you even know who Kennedy is? Maybe, maybe not. Right. And that, that, that is also significant. So you have an assassination that fundamentally changes the country and even mainstream media will talk about basically that the 1950s, a time of consensus and growth and optimism really continues into the early 1960s in America. And since the Kennedy assassination, we have increasingly fractured in many ways. Yep life has become much more unstable. Okay. Assassination is a point where politics and the political process and law do not really have control over violence. You would think that when the executive is shot and shot to death, or in the Spanish case of Sotelo, that, you know, your leader, your political leader is shot to death, that that is existential for that political group in the Spanish case or for our regime in the American case. And you would want to say, okay, we're going to come up with a better explanation 15 years later, right? We're going to come up with a better explanation of, you know, why and how this man died than that a lone wolf, which is, you'll, you'll notice is still a narrative that we, we drag up with the Las Vegas shooting and lots of things that the regime apparently doesn't really have an explanation for. This lone wolf fired a bullet that was headed one way and then turned around and headed in the other and killed this man. And that's why it happened. And it was communism and, and we're done. And conveniently, he got shot like the next day by a guy that no one knows anything about, Jack Ruby, who's plugged into Vegas and plugged into a lot of mob connections. Okay. So no one looks into that. No one knows what that is. And some people are listening to this and thinking I'm crazy. What I'm saying is assassination 
should be significant for everyone when it occurs in a way that shows you something really horrendous is either being attempted or has occurred. Because assassination is where you're saying, I don't actually want a war. And I think that if I just got rid of this one specific person, I could get what I wanted. Right? The, that everything is so unstable that if I got rid of this one person, I would either be carrying out God's wrath, okay, or whatever I figure that is, the proletariat's wrath, whatever. And or the regime would have to react in such a signal way to my demands or my group's demands. Assassination is a real barometer of sickness in mm. a body politic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we had one on TV. Hmm. And we just sort of like went on with life. And in the next two years after that assassination, lots of things happened that are definitive for our body politic, the Civil Rights Act, the the Heart Seller Act that changed uh, American immigration forever. Things that we've talked about on this and that if you want to know about this, you know, this is what Christopher Caldwell calls in the book of the same title, The Age of Entitlement. <laughs> and he thinks that America changes from being a place that's about the protection of, of rights or liberties of the people to a place that's organized around guaranteeing equal outcomes for everyone, or at least for certain political classes. So go look up Christopher Caldwell. But we change really significantly. We get formally involved in Vietnam. Lots of things change because of that assassination. But we're, can, we continue to act like it's just all the same country. And this has to do with something that I think is part of why the avalanche moves so slowly in America, is that we, can, we are always told that it's the same country that was founded in 1776. Whereas when you have multiple constitutions and overthrows of government and political assassinations, such as in Spain in the 20th century, everyone is up front like, you don't want to do the same thing we want to do. You don't have anything in common with us. You're killing our people. Everyone lets it be clear what the oppositions are. Whereas in America, we continue to have to believe that we're all basically on the same team. And I think that the reason that that is possible is because America is the place where it happened on TV. Hmm. That if it were not for the role of mass media, um, especially in 20th century America, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the history of American propaganda, if it weren't for that role and how important it is in the United States where almost all American households have a TV by the time Kennedy is shot, they could not manage consensus about that. Yeah, right. And if they can manage consensus, however, they can keep people passive and quiet, which is obviously what a regime needs. All right. There, there was a lot in there. I, and there's so much I want to talk about. I, I'm going to try not to. The the Kennedy idea, though, as an, as an 80s child raised on movie history and not having seen Kevin Costner's Kevin e. Kennedy because it was it was really long. Um <laughs> I can say this, though. I can say that the, the zeitgeist spirit of the thing was this. It was such a horrible, horrible thing that Kennedy died. It, it just was so, so horrible. Hmm. We don't really know who, and it, 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 it might have been the government, but it, it, we're just probably not. In, um, go, to, go to school. Go to school. <laughs> and, and that's sort of it. That's Kennedy. Right. That that is the the education I got on Kennedy. And I've always in my heart been like, I think I'm pretty sure that whatever happened, the main narrative is not it. And then from there, I mean, this idea that this was a time where I've never had this till, till you suggested this for the first time. You have a massive, massive human population invested in nightly programming of their hearts, minds, and souls by a spirit yeah. from far away who yeah. then are unified in a trauma so unexpected and so impossible that they can only believe what the TV tells them about it afterwards. Right. And they are just kept now and forget who's in charge. Um, we'll, we'll pass whatever laws, uh, what's on tonight becomes even more unmissable effectively. It is expedient then, is it not for one man to die for the people and the scapegoat culture of the left just kind of rolls on one or the other but underneath all of that. The other thing I just want to throw out there for assassinations yeah. and, and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, I did have the audible of Once Upon a Time in Russia, which is a tale of uh, Putin's 
rise, but not from Putin's perspective. It's from the the perspective of a couple of his opposition opponents. Uh, you can use the same thing twice, but um, you know his opponents and uh, the stories of their assassinations and or attempted ones are detailed and. Uh, Wow, it's good reading. I'll say that. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and and the Russians, I mean, plainly like to uh, like to poison people, especially in London. Um, so <laughs> right, right, look, right, right. If you look into that, you know, you know what I'm talking about. But I believe that was I actually think, part of the storyline. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, you know, I there there's a sense in which the the relative forthrightness of that demonstrates a certain honesty that that our regime is unable to have yeah. because when something destructive is filmed or seen, they will often uh, either try to suppress uh, video or audio. So um, if you turned in your cell phone at the Jason Aldean concert in Las Vegas to the police, as you were required to, required to do in order to leave, it came back to you with no video or audio on it. Right. And that, that's just a fact you can go find, you can go find that. So they'll try to suppress memory of that, which, you know, happens if you click through to the second Google page, you'll see that you have fewer results than you did before. So maybe you don't actually have 8 million results for what you were searching for, like they said on the first page of results. So there's there's suppression. And I think it's it's why the internet has become a lot less free than it, it was maybe 15 years what, ago. What but am I fa- a, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. But in, a, in addition to that, there's also the way in which if, if it's just too blatant, the guy is shot and all these people right there in Dallas see it happen or the planes hit the building or whatever. If it's too blatant, then what you will be provided with is a constant description, const- incessant. They will try to achieve by repetition what they could not achieve initially is a repetition that will ensure consensus. Because if you remember back to 2001, no one really bothered at the time to explain how or why Iraq was actually connected to this exactly. Well, but they were mentioned, they were mentioned from the beginning. Yeah, right. So repetition will achieve what you know, the evidence of your own eyes cannot and repetition of, we don't know why it happened, or there was this bad guy, you know, and his name was Oswald, whatever will achieve that for most people, because something that I think they understand really well is that most people really are extremely susceptible to repetition. They're not disgusted by it. They actually like it and, and it feels natural and normal. So if it happens often enough, if they get enough COVID body counts on the TV every day, they're going to get really worried about COVID or whatever it might be. And that is something where you can see that our regime uses repetition where the evidence of something grievous, cancerous in the body politic is so evident. The president was shot. 3,000 Americans died today, whatever it might be. Then they're going to need to manage that. And the reason that our avalanche is so slow historically is that they feel that they can manage it through repetition. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that you're getting such brittleness and rage openly about the unvaccinated, for example, is because I I think everybody knows that they're slipping. Yeah. Yeah. That things are, are not what they should be. And if you look at Spanish history, you get similar rhetoric in the run up to the Civil War, especially from the regime, just denunciation of priests, denunciation of the landowners, denunciation of the army. You get that because they realize we don't we don't have a hold. So we're not going to talk them into it anymore. Hmm. Hmm. You mentioned the right is waiting for a rescuer to come and that's sort of yeah. like it's it's ethos. Isn't it? I mean, so and what you're advocating, I think, I think it's what I'm advocating too, is that uh, a rescuer uh, shall arise and, and that's you. Like, they're, the right can't wait for the white hat. The right is either going to be the white hat yeah. or there will be none. Yeah, and that's, that's right. where I'm, I'm yeah. done with so much of right politics when I say this. So don't hear me being like, so go Republican. No, that's not what I just said. What I said is wherever you are, you are the one who must rescue. 
And if you don't know what that means, I mean, well, you might need self-rescue first, honestly. Affecting self-rescue is the first step in survival. Like, go read a book about it. It's what it says. So self-rescue. And then from there, when you know, you can like, I'm not confused anymore. I have realized the luxury of sitting confused, twiddling my thumbs and wasting my time has passed. Um, And so now I'm going to do something right now. You are again, you are your own rescuer arising and, and hopefully you're going to see the good that you can do for others. So is, is that kind of something we should take from this? I think you're with me. Yeah, because I I think that you need to understand that the story about Lee Harvey Oswald and the, what Arlen Specter made up about a bullet that heads in one direction and then turns around and heads back the other way is the same thing that the availability of depressants, uh, pharmaceuticals and pornography is meant to do, which is it's going to confuse you and it's going to make you passive. And that's what it's there for. You know, once, once you realize that when the Israelis wanted to demoralize the Palestinians, they began to broadcast pornography over open TV airwaves into Palestinian territory. You understand what the point of these things is. It might be money laundering for all kinds of things. I'm sure that's part of it, just like modern art. But the point of a lot of this is to make you so passive that this brutal regime has and needs to have no fear. They can just talk about locking you in your house forever and they don't have to worry about it. They can just be open with it. And partly they're being open because they're worried and uh, they're not they don't really know, like I said, because they're generally themselves unfamiliar with physical pain or limitation. They, they don't know how to exercise power in a gracious way for the benefit of the people they're serving, but also because they don't know what else to do because they're worried about you. They're worried that you might actually like stop being addicted to pornography and have capacity to exercise willpower. They're worried about that. Because As well they maybe be. we're going to get a Francisco Franco, you know, figure on our hands if we don't keep these people passive, or maybe we're going to get actual change in a church on something that actually matters if we don't keep people passive and cynical, because cynicism easily exists alongside passivity, because I can just complain about what's wrong with you and never deal with what's wrong with me. It's easy. You got the threat to religion on your list here. Have we covered that or is there something else you wanted to get into? No, and I think that we're going to have to leave it over for next time because it's it's a story that I think needs to be burned into people's minds. So I want to I want to tell some specific stories relative to Spain next time and and that'll get us into other other forms of collapse because I want to talk about people's daily lives during these things and then also some of the international aspects of the civil war proper in Spain. So daily life, but also, you know, what happens when a country does fall apart politically to all the people who might be interested in that country who live in a different country. So that's a story which is also generally unknown. It's often read, and in just kind of pure military technology terms, it is a preview of World War II. The Germans try out their tech the Soviets try out their tech. So you get Soviet tanks being attacked by German planes, just like you'll get in like 1942, but you get it in Spain in 1937. <laughs> so it is a preview, but but it's lots of other things too. And it's something I'm interested in relative to America because America is such a huge land and resource right, market. Right, right, right. So can there's I cut n- in on that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, because this is a note from earlier. Um, and, and so you don't... Uh, Sectionality matters more now than the national narrative, and we've established this. Um, but we were talking about, you know, the fall of the U.S., right? But like, so, and it, how how it's going at a slower pace than Spain. Well, Spain's a much smaller place, right? Yeah. And so, where yeah. is it going faster? In various localities and states. So, Illinois is collapsing much faster uh, than right. than say Idaho, you know, yeah. at the moment. And so, sectionality is so huge the collapse of the United States will look like the collapse of many smaller states and then the rise of some others probably. Right. Exactly. And, and it's something that you say, okay, um, I don't want to live in California because California is horrible and blah, blah, blah. And I totally get that. That doesn't mean that Chinese real estate investors are going to stop being interested in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. So this is something that, you know, there, and there are ideological interests at stake in the political collapse of Spain and then reconstitution under Franco. But yeah, so I mean, we're going to have to leave it. There's so much to say because I want to talk about people's daily life. I want to talk about the church and I want to do that, especially in, I guess, 
you know, we're getting, we're running down here today, but I want to do that because if it's not clear to people already, the reason that I talk about these things is partly out of just personal interest and weirdness, just me. That's why we do so many different places and events, but it's also because I want to provide wisdom, especially for Christians, because I find that Christians have often, especially Lutheran Christians, have been told not to care about this stuff because Jesus is going to come back or it doesn't involve the church. And the problem is it involves the church on the level of people's everyday lives. So if you're a machinist and you can't get any orders in because of supply chain problems, I'm interested in supply chains. It doesn't mean I'm telling you definitively as a pastor what to do about them. But I'm interested for your sake. And if I can help you figure out what's going on, I want to. But also because certain things are existential political threats to the church. Among those in the contemporary United States is what goes under the moniker of cultural Marxism. Hmm. Among those in the United States is what goes under the moniker very often of left-wing politics. So you need to understand that, yeah, not everything. I mean, I'm not going to go preach from the pulpit about what you should do about steel tariffs. But I am happy to say that transgenderism is an existential threat to your children. I am happy to say that, you know, not recognizing a religious exemption to forcible gene therapy is a threat to you. Yeah. I can say that from a pulpit. Yeah. Happy to say. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you need to recognize that certain political problems, military problems, economic problems, become existential threats to the church. And I don't want us to wait until pastors are being shot in the head to figure that out and to do something about it, because that's how much it took for the Spanish right to get its act together, to understand that they needed to do something positive rather than just reacting to what the left was forcing them to react to. Yeah. 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 If you want this pastor to stop talking politics, you got to get the devil to stop talking religion. And then I'll, uh, I'll get there. I'll get there you there. go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so important and it is so much of what I think you and I personally are praying about yeah. that, um, that our body, those who are listening and those who are not, uh, would understand that, uh, we have wisdom for this day if we will remember it and, right. and that we can speak to the world, that the, the place of the Lutheran Reformation is not to repristinate an argument that nobody's having. Uh, the, the strength of the Lutheran Reformation is that the scriptures are the voice of God on earth. Right. And you have them, you know? Right. And, and so again, for such a time as this, this can be the best game you ever had, especially because you get a second life and it's going to be better, you know? So, so go out like it means something. Um, and in that then, you know, if, if you're still sitting there saying, I just don't feel like I don't understand pastor, how, 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 um, you got to take us seriously when, when we're talking about, um, uh, detethering, right. And I'm not saying right. cold Turkey, but I'm saying set a goal for next year, set a goal for a year and a half from now. Um, less, less is so much more and none right. is actually a lot when you, when you're dealing with, uh, removing audio tech in your life. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think that you have to understand that your your consensus and so also your soul and downstream from your soul, your capacity for action in life, politically or otherwise, is being controlled and manufactured by those things. They don't need to put a microchip in you. They already have your attention. So once you remove that, you're not only not microchipped, you're also not under their control already. Did you hear... This is like total shift, maybe kind of last thing here. We're, it's really late news because people are going to hear this like in three weeks. Did you hear that China decided to make video gaming only allowed for three hours a week for all their children, like by government mandate and with iPhone or iPhone controls, and then it's only, what, Friday night, Saturday morning, and like Sunday night? That is so clever. That is so wise. I am I'm terrified of how good a government, communist China, appears to be. Um, <laughs> golly. Yeah, I know. They, well, it, they appear actually to love their people yeah. because they want their people to have minds. And um, our government, I mean, I, we don't have maybe maybe eventually Blake Masters or Joe Kent or Paul Gosser or somebody will start talking about video games. But even our even our guys, you know, J.D. Vance, whatever, that that understand that the government should actually govern for the benefit of the American population. They're, they're not talking about video games. So 
hopefully we get there, but it's, nah. it's a marker. It, it's, it's, it's the inverse of a government that lets inflation run rampant. The, the same, the same thing that China is doing at the same time is cutting down on feminine males in popular film and media. No, right. So no. what they're realizing is that video games actually it can limit or delimit your masculinity because again, you're sitting there and you're just uh, soaking up that blue light that ain't going to increase your testosterone. So (laughs) they are honestly following natural law with great wisdom. And I don't think the United States, for God's sake, I pray, dear Jesus, I'm actually praying right now, Jesus, do not let the United States tell us what to do with our computers. Um, The, uh, what needs to happen is every father who cares in the United States needs to see what China just did and be like, I'm going to be a better father than China. I'm going to be a better father than China. That that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. That's what we need. I mean, right. that is so much more important that we're never going to do that on a, on a uh, practical scale here. Um, oh, goodness gracious. Small communities, collectives, right? That's, that's what we, why we advocate that too. Um, so, cause you and a couple of families taking uh, attention together toward your sons, and saying, look, we, we want to teach these kids to interact with the world they live in, but we also want to um, stop Tuchulu from soaking their brains out. And so, you know, we're going to have a joined accountability, not just our family, right? But but our congregation. Right. Our congregations are so far from those kinds of conversations, though. Like, we, we oh my goodness. Um, God be praised. Yeah. Uh, he will He will see us through this. But it, it's going to be through, again, fathers talking to each other and taking some stands, uh, realizing that you can't wait for the government to fix your kids for you. Oh, gosh. Ooh. Yeah, I, I, I think... I'm I'm actually a little optimistic. Maybe my my sample is is pre-selected for people that listen to Prehistory of Power, but I'm somewhat optimistic that when you start talking about stuff like this, people are ready to hear it because mm. I think that if we we wait for a time for leadership to be provided from some kind of higher echelon, it's not going to come and people realize the world that we're living in is kind of a horrible place mm. and they they want they want something else. It's inchoate, right? Because it's <laughs> because their instincts are good, but they don't know what they are or should be or how they should be expressed. But hopefully we're bringing things like that to expression. And even on a congregational level, and I hope, you know, I hope eventually beyond that by various means, we're going to be able to put together groups of people who are devoted to some kind of long-term thinking mm. for the good that will actually be able to see us through this, you know, whatever, whatever regimes regional or otherwise we find ourselves living under. I know that your work on this show has inspired uh, a number of my local guys to do just that though, to take ownership of their congregation simply by saying, we're going to take ownership of each other as guys in this congregation. We don't know each other. We're going to get to know each other and we're going to care about this place um, in the long term. And that comes out of, again, uh, the encouragement to do something where, where you are, where they are. Yeah, and so right. um, I, I also have optimism. I have great optimism for places where um, uh, wisdom will take root and people will not just face the times to come, but I think in certain ways will blossom and, and flower and bear fruit right. in ways yep. we couldn't have imagined when we were yep. busy running the rat race. It, it, but that doesn't mean it won't come with its own fair share of thorns and all this. But I can say that watching these these young men just embrace being young men together post-college at the congregation, having missed that, right? I never got anything like that. It's just so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. I relish what their children are going to get because of uh, this growth. And it comes from, again, the, the, the prick of, of the moment, um, yeah. the, the crazy of the present that is giving them the potential to like really question deep assumptions, like generational assumptions about what life looks like, and then say, well, the Bible says this. And uh, what a time. What a time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, want to be alive in any other time, which is good because it's the only one I've been given. Now you're listening to A Brief History Power, two white guys. You know where to find us or you would not be here. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. 
Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.